You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. He's in the building! Drink the moment. Drink it. I said, empty your mind. Coquettish and coy. Ow. Ow. What? There's people that are dying. The wickedly talented. More than great. It was historic. Crack is world. Oh, good for you. I have to apologize. One of the hottest. Hello, and welcome back to The Reheat, a podcast that re-examines the hottest celebrity news and scandals of yesteryear and asks, how would we react to the same events if they'd transpired today? I'm your co-host, Sarah Sahagian. And I'm your other co-host, Sadaf Hassan. And this week, we're going to take a look at the legacy of one very handsome, if I do say so myself, and very beloved Bruce Lee. The Chinese-American actor, martial artist, philosopher, teacher, all of the things. A pop culture icon who served as a bridge between not only Hollywood and sports, but the East and the West, and provided possibly the most pivotal Asian representation our screens have ever seen, to be honest. His name has been back in the mouths of the entertainment industry recently, thanks to one little movie called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, directed by Quentin Tarantino, which showcased Bruce in a very controversial way that highlighted many of the troubles he faced when he came to America. Sarah, what do you know about Bruce Lee? What's your relationship with him? So Bruce Lee is a hero in my home. My husband's name is actually Brandon Lee. He was not named after Bruce Lee's son, at least not intentionally. His parents We're going to assume he is, though. <laughs> His parents didn't know who Brandon Lee was at the time, but my husband has since become um, fixated on Brandon and Bruce if we had had a son, he wanted to name our baby Bruce Wayne Lee. That way he could be named after Bruce Lee and Batman, my husband's two heroes. Um, so my daughter was almost <laughs> Bruce Wayne Lee, but thank goodness she was a girl. So that's not her name because as much as I love Bruce imagine? Lee, that's not a good name. Bruce Wayne Lee is not a good name. <laughs> <laughs> as much as I love Bruce Lee. But I mean, he's a hero in our home. My baby even has a book about Bruce Lee. Um, for children that we read to her. Uh, he was, you know, the king of kung fu movie stars. He was also the father of Brandon Lee, who was poised to become a huge action star a la Keanu Reeves and then died incredibly tragically. Um, and Bruce came from a life of privilege. His father was also a famous um, opera star. So he had a really fascinating life right from the beginning. And I'm excited to talk about him today. I love Bruce Lee. Yeah, me too. I think my dad actually is the one who introduced me to him first. I mean, Bruce Lee is very much a dad type of legend. My dad loved him. I remember his movies being on when I was younger. And I think I've probably seen a poster of him hanging on the wall of every man's apartment I have ever been to since then. And by the way, sir, can I just say, I do hope you have a son one day and I do hope his name is B.W. Bruce Wayne. There's something to it. A little Marvel guy. Yeah, I mean, over my dead body. Like, but I think it's... <laughs> okay, that nails it. Sorry, Brandon. It's one of those things other people would find cool, but it would really, I think, affect my son horribly. Um, I don't think you can be named Bruce Wayne Lee like, and be on the Supreme Court. I just don't think you can. I think it limits your opportunities in life to have a name that's functionally kind of just like, I don't know, 
fanboying over two awesome people, but still fanboying. I would vote for President Bruce Wayne. I'm just going to say that. Okay. (laughs) Now, here's a little refresher. If you don't know Bruce Lee or if you're a little foggy on his legacy, he was born in Chinatown in San Francisco, but he grew up in Hong Kong in the 1950s. He was very much known for his physique. So let me spell that out for you. He was 5'7", 140 pounds with a stomach like a brick wall. Those are not my words. I wish I had that firsthand intel. I do not. And he had a love for bright suits and oversized sunglasses. He very much was a vibe. Now, despite his love for fighting and competition from a pretty young age, he was a modest guy. He didn't want to be a star. He kind of fell into it. And that's partly for the reason Sarah mentioned earlier. His father was a very famous Cantonese opera star. His mom was old money. So he also came from a bit of a privileged background and he was in the entertainment world a lot. He was in his first movie when he was a baby, and by 18, he'd been in 20 of them. That's no small feat. At the same time, he was ending up in street fights the whole time while he was in school. Um, So his parents decided to put him through martial arts training, naturally. Um, And that became his true love, and it led him to winning countless tournaments. He mastered something called Wing Chun, which is a southern Chinese kung fu style that features quick arm movements and where softness and performance is kind of everything. And that also brings me to my favorite fact about Bruce Lee. He was a very accomplished dancer, um, and very much so in the dances of the time. So that would include the jive, the boogie woogie, the cha-cha and he kind of did it because he wanted to get with girls and he was a bit shy at the time but he ended up winning tournaments with those dances um, for years and that skill lent him the softness he needed to kind of kill it at Wing Chun. Um, Sarah do we call this a dream man or not? Oh absolutely. Fantastic. His wife was so lucky. I mean he was charming. He could dance. His cha-cha skills were pretty much unparalleled. And that's what made him such a great kung fu star. Because when you look at old clips of him, he's incredibly graceful. It's beautiful to watch him. Yeah, completely. I agree. And as the story goes, though, he was still fighting on the low, or maybe not so low. He knocked out the teeth of a kid at school so badly one day that the police said if he got caught one more time, he'd be put in jail. So his mom sent him to the U.S. because that was apparently where you go to be a better person. Don't know about that one. But he was also born there and he was a citizen, so it made it easy. And in 1959, he moved to Seattle. There he worked as a waiter just for one week because he kind of hated it and he also kind of sucked at it. Bruce Lee was not good at everything. Um, But he kept the kung fu going. He wanted to be the best in the world. And when he did a routine at a local kung fu exhibition one day, a young black man named Jesse Glover was watching in the audience and was mesmerized by Bruce's subtle technique. And Jesse was obsessed with martial arts. He had been ever since a drunken racist cop shattered his jaw with a nightstick. That doesn't sound topical. I don't know what does. And Jesse wanted revenge, but there were no Asian martial artist instructors who would teach a Black teenager at the time. Again, this was the 50s and the 60s. After following Bruce around, his work and his school, not creepy at all, he eventually got up the courage to ask him to teach him, and Bruce agreed. So Jesse became his first student, and soon they became fast friends, daily training partners. Jesse once said, quote, Bruce could do things I hadn't even thought possible. He could block his every punch, and he was super fast. Um, And soon the two of them had even more students. They were white. They were black, brown, Asian. It made Bruce the first to teach kung fu to people of color in America, which is 
massive. Um, and he would go on to be a teacher for tons of famous people, including Steve McQueen and James Coburn. And he came before the legends that we all know now, which are Jackie Chan, Steven Seagal, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Chuck Norris, you know, all that schlocky action. He preceded them and he had a little more heft to him, I'd say. Um, sir, what do you think of the way that Bruce sort of set the standard for the way we look at martial arts on screen over the years and now? So obviously he was a pivotal figure. I don't know if he's ever received adequate credit. I don't know if he's ever received adequate credit for doing so. You referred to the way Tarantino represented him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is egregious because there's a scene where he gets into a fight with the Brad Pitt character. And while Bruce does win one of the fights, so does the Brad Pitt character. And the idea that Bruce Lee, master of martial arts, would lose to this guy who had no formal training is absurd and I think actually diminishes his legacy. Like this is fictional. It didn't actually happen. But this reimagining of him downplays his prowess and how he really outclassed everyone else. And that's why he inspired people. And that's why they went to him to be taught how to do these action sequences and how to do martial arts. Um, I feel like that was, I mean... I don't even know if you call it a microaggression. I think it's just an overtly racist moment that attacks the legacy of one of the most famous Asian-American movie stars of all time. Yeah, I completely agree. And we'll come back to Once Upon a Time in a bit, but I think that really nails it. Um, and what really sticks with me too is the Jesse Glover story, which gets a little bit buried when people talk about Bruce's legacy, but that was a huge moment because police brutality against Black men is something that is so talked about now. And again, this was almost 50, 60, 70 years ago, and it was still happening. And I think what it also makes me think of is that people of color stick together. You know, he came to Bruce Lee asking for help, and Bruce was more than happy to do that. And they got this little club and team together who stuck up for each other. And I think there's something so special about that. Um, so for the next several years, Bruce gave up acting and focused on martial arts, which he loved so much, until an exhibition on Long Beach in 1964, when he was introduced to a TV producer named William Dozier. He asked him to audition for a role in a TV pilot that never ended up happening, but it did lead to a very key role on the Green Hornet series, which is a very hilarious show that is worth the watch. It only lasted a season, but it kickstarted Bruce's re-entry into film and introduced him to American audiences for the first time. He also got to show off his own brand of fighting skills on the show and was even asked to slow down his moves because they were too fast for the camera to capture. As he continued to develop his own technique and in combination with his own philosophies, which we'll come back to, he named this whole process and package Jeet Kune Do, which means the way of the intercepting fist. What sounds cooler than that? Um, now, for the, for, for the next decade, he appeared in Ironside, Marlowe, Longstreet, a few series here and there. He also attempted to have his own series made called The Warrior, but according to his wife Linda's memoirs, Warner Brothers took the concept, changed its name to Kung Fu, gave him zero credit, and cast a white actor with no martial arts experience to play the role, which was still that of an Asian man, and that actor was David Carradine. I mean, this is absurd. It also doesn't get whiter than David Carradine, I'm sorry. Um, but the show was accused of egregious yellow face aptly and whitewashing. It also featured tons of problematic narratives, including discussion of concubines, women being bought and sold, the use of the word oriental. There was even a mistaken use of Chinese name order, Japanese symbols, you name it, the show committed it. Um, basically, it was pure chaos. And that's what happens when you leave Bruce Lee out of his own creation. And as pivotal as he was behind the 
scenes on other films where he worked as a fight instructor, it didn't matter because even the famous critic, beloved Roger Ebert, would get his name wrong. Critics would mix him up with other Asian actors. He'd often be referred to as, quote unquote, the Chinaman in reviews, with Ted Thomas even saying, quote, it's very unusual to find a Chinese actor who can act or one that would make non-Chinese people pay money to see them, end quote. That's pretty egregious, I'd say. So, Sarah, what is your take on the way Hollywood stole his idea? And I mean, how prominent whitewashing still is after all that time. Whitewashing is a problem that Hollywood has had since the beginning of Hollywood, and it still has. I mean, it was only a few years ago when Emma Stone was supposed to play an Asian-American person in Aloha. Um, I mean, she did play an Asian-American person in Aloha, even though she is a white actress. So I'm not surprised. It's still tragic what happened to him because he had these brilliant ideas. He was so capable. He was better than everybody else. But because of racism, he didn't get the opportunities that he deserved. And then these mediocre white guys get elevated, which, I mean, still happens in Hollywood to this day. Um, Bruce Lee is he's a really interesting study in whitewashing because it shows you Hollywood isn't meritocratic and it isn't today, and it certainly wasn't then, that you can literally be the best in the world at what you do. You can be an innovator who creates new methods of doing what you do and still get passed over for a white guy. So well put. And by the way, I want to add Scarlett Johansson to the list because she also played an Asian character once. And mm-hmm. her defense was, I can do it. I could also play a tree. And you know what? Maybe she could because she is that wooden. So I will allow that. <laughs> um <laughs> Sorry, Scarjo, but not really. Okay, so after that, and perhaps wisely, let's be real, Bruce decided to return home to Hong Kong because he was sick of playing bit parts. He was sick of being treated in this way. Um, And he was immediately offered lead roles. His first came with 1971's The Big Boss, which was a massive commercial and critical success and catapulted him into fame. Um, You know, he would often call himself as being bigger than the Beatles when he would go home, which is really something special. And then came several more hits. There was Fist of Fury, Way of the Dragon. And for that one, he was the writer, the director, the star, the fight choreographer. He also introduced Chuck Norris to the screen with that movie. And this is one of the most popular fight scenes in film history. And it's a good one to check out. Um, So these two films grossed over $130 million worldwide. That's a lot. Bruce Lee was officially Bruce Lee. His final film, Enter the Dragon, which saw him work alongside Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who he also trained, was released posthumously and also became a massive hit. Um, Sarah, have you ever seen any of these? What do you think of the way that Bruce also managed to come home and find love when he got there? So I need to see more of these films. Um, I I haven't, and my husband's always trying to encourage me to do so, and that'll be a, a a really fun rainy day project. And I've seen some clips of him fighting in these films and wow, like he just makes such an impression. And what's really cool about him is that he's doing a lot of acting, like face acting while he's fighting. You can tell he's really in it and he's thinking about his character's motivations. Like he's a very, very talented person and his performances are so multifaceted. Like a lot of action stars can do the action, but not the acting. And he could always do both. It's unfair that he had to leave the U.S. to be successful. Um, it, I mean, it's obviously unfair. 
But at the same time, I'm glad that there were people who gave him the opportunities to do what he was brilliant at. I love that point that you made, Sarah, because he had so much charm. He had so much charisma. It just kind of leaped off the screen. And that's what was so special about him. It wasn't just the fighting, which was also just so incredible. But, you know, you have somebody like Steven Seagal or Arnold Schwarzenegger, who you can tell are reading off a page and are completely dead inside and behind the eyes. Mm -hmm. We need a little more. And by the way, I don't include Sylvester Stallone in that list. He's separate and he's spectacular and we love him. I love him. I don't know about you, sir. No, he can act. I even think, even though I don't love him as a person, Bruce Willis isn't a bad actor. He's not as good as Bruce Lee, but he's not bad. But so many of the action stars who became famous in the late 80s and 90s, like the the Schwarzeneggers, um, (laughs) it was almost part of the gambit that they couldn't act, right? They'd give Arnie those horrible one-liners that he really just didn't even try to make work and those became like the biggest jokes of the movie like anyway I Bruce Lee was very talented and actually cared you're so right those characters and those actors part of the whole thing was that they were a joke and we were laughing at them whereas with Bruce there was none of that to it if he wanted us to laugh then we would laugh but that was kind of the case um so what's most notable about all of this is that at the time Bruce originally made his way to the U.S. in the 1950s and I think this is just one of the most important points about his legacy and it's important to know Hong Kong had been colonized by the British and by the way, it was only released in 1997, which is very recent. Um, but from 1941 to 1945, it fell under Japanese occupation. So that kind of shattered the myth of white superiority there and led to a rise in Chinese nationalism. Matthew Pauly, Bruce Lee's biographer, once quoted him as saying, the British were the ruling class. They were the minority, but they ran the city. They lived up on the hills with the big cars and beautiful homes, while the rest of the population who lived below struggled and sweat their asses off to make a living. You saw so much poverty among the Chinese people that eventually it was natural to hate the filthy rich British. They made the most money and had the best jobs because the color of their skin was white. Now that last line seems to be a running theme for what Bruce would face not only at home, but in the martial arts world and in Hollywood. And it's what so many people still face in Hollywood. That's the thing here. Um, And you know, another part of American and Canadian history that is so crucial here, and if you're not familiar with it, I suggest looking it up for a little more. But there was also the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was proposed in 1881 and meant essentially the banning of people based on race. In the time it took to pass, white protesters attacked Chinese communities with violence and terror, so much so that it was called the driving out. Sounds terrifying. They were effectively being pushed out of town. And for the next 60 years, Chinese people became further marginalized and discriminated against. It all came to an end when President Roosevelt decided America needed them, naturally, in 1943 to keep them fighting on their side and as an ally. Now, after the war, this led to a rise in Chinese immigrants as the U.S. was in need of skilled workers, scientists, engineers, doctors, you name it. And Bruce was one of those people who came over at that time. It led to the era of the Yellow Peril and soon after the model minority myth. But what I find interesting is we're seeing this exact damn pattern play out right now in the U.S., in Canada, but also really all around the world. Um, Sarah, I mean, history is repeating itself, isn't it? It is. And there were a lot of laws that really entrenched racism against Asian people in the U.S. for a long time. I mean, it was true that for much of the 20th century, if an American woman married 
an Asian man, she lost her citizenship, um, which is part of what probably historically led to the desexualization of the Asian man. I mean, there there were many reasons why families um, were racist against Asian people and didn't want their daughters to date them. There was a lot of white supremacy there. But the law was essentially dictating that women should not see Asian men as viable dating options. Um, and that is, a, we see remnants of that in popular culture today, where Asian men are very rarely the leading man. They're very rarely portrayed as strong and sexy. They're often emasculated. There is a fraught history that's part of the legacy of how we treat Asian people in popular culture. And I don't think you can ignore um, the Asian Exclusion Act or legislation like that. So I'm so happy you brought that up, Sadaf. I think that's such a smart point you're making. Yeah. And I think everything you just added is, it just nails it home because so much of the way that we view these characters or Asian people in life is based on the way they're presented on screen because that's what we grow up seeing. Um, and it's definitely repeating on a cycle. I'm not even sure that it's ever changed. The hope is that a change will stick one day because one thing I think about a lot is Henry Golding and Crazy Rich Asians. I mean, really the whole cast of Crazy Rich Asians in 2018. They were gorgeous people. They were all Asian. And it was a lot like when Bruce Lee stepped out first and showed that an Asian character can be beautiful. They can be have a certain physique and they can be really charming. Now, before we get into the way that Bruce Lee kind of redefined the way we look at Asian actors on screen, I think it's time to take a quick little break. So with Bruce Lee, when he came out, he was somebody who showed that Asian people can be beautiful, they can be charming, they can be the love interest. And it's something we saw again in 2018 with Crazy Rich Asians. I mean, that is a gorgeous cast. They're all Asian. Henry Golding has really begun to make a name for himself in a similar way. And you know, all of these actors also mentioned Bruce Lee as a big inspiration. And I think that's a huge reason why, because he was kind of one of the first people to try and make that happen. And it's the reason he's practically God like in the Asian community. You know, he gave voices to a lot of people who looked like him at a time when North America wasn't really keen to do that and were very openly banishing people and um, restricting them to these humiliating stereotypes that you mentioned earlier, Sarah. And, um, you know, Asian men often played the villains who would steal your girl or they'd be super emasculated. It was kind of just the two. Um, and there's a character who says in the play, Be Like Water, which is worth checking out, by the way, and it's based on Bruce Lee, written by performer Dan Kwong. There's this beautiful line. It goes, quote, if you were an Asian guy, there was nothing out there to look up to, nothing, until Bruce Lee. It was like growing up in a dry, empty desert. Then one day you walk over a hill and there's the Pacific Ocean. That was Bruce. He was the ocean. I remember a quote that Randall Park once said about Bruce, who he saw as a hero, and he watched his 30 for 30 for ESPN last year. And he said, this is what white people must feel like all the time. And I think that really puts it into perspective. You know, as a South Asian person, when I was growing up, I didn't have anybody that I could look to on TV or in movies and be like, hey, that's me. Things have really changed over time. They're going very slowly. But it's so important to be able to have that role model as you're growing up and to just see, oh, okay, I can be that person. I can be like that. I can reach for more. Um, because it also just models the way that we feel about ourselves. And by the way, this was all a very active effort on Bruce's part. He wanted to be a voice for his people. 
And in his lead roles, he often played a hero who fought against colonization, defended immigrants, protected his community. And a lot of that comes from his personal history that we talked about earlier. So, you know, as Sarah mentioned earlier, even when he came to America, he experienced tons of racism just on the street when he'd be walking around with his white wife or a girlfriend. So this was something that he experienced quite a bit. Um, Sarah, do you feel like I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but do you feel like he wanted to be an advocate from the get-go or he was kind of pushed into it a little bit? When there's one famous person of a certain ethnicity, which happens so often in Hollywood, where they don't allow multiple people from the same racialized group to be famous and to succeed, that's just white supremacy in Hollywood. I think a lot of performers in that position then feel an obligation to be a role model for their community. And that obligation sucks because white actors don't have to be representatives for all of white people. Um, But I do think that given how central to his career he made this advocacy and how much a part of the stories of the movies he made, this kind of fighting white supremacy theme was, I think it probably, even if it didn't start out as something he was passionate about, became a real mission for him. Representation matters so much. And every time I try to find children's books for my daughter that have characters who look like her, I'm confronted with the fact that white supremacy is still everywhere, even though we're starting to have a conversation about racism in our society. It's still in, I would say it's still in its infancy, this conversation. There's so much more that had to be said. So, I mean, Bruce Lee is a real hero in our house. As people often say, you can only be what you can see. And it was really important what he showed people. Oh, I love that line. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for him, it was very much an active thing that he decided to do once he noticed he had that responsibility, which is unfair, certainly. But it's also something that I think a lot of people of color end up feeling when they're kind of the sole person in their industry. They've got a platform. Um And it's a good thing. And I think he loved doing it. Bao Wen, who directed that 30 for 30, said in a GQ interview recently, Bruce always understood the power of his own voice, the power of speaking up. On Green Hornet, he spoke up about pay equity and not having enough lines when most actors would just be happy to get a paycheck. Sometimes Asian Americans and people of color are not allowed to be seen for their potential. We have to own up to ourselves so much more than other people. And when we start to own up to our potential, we are seen as arrogant and not being in our place. Bruce Lee is this great example of someone who walked that fine line of some people thinking he's arrogant versus him thinking of himself as confident. And that, of course, is one of the things that's really muddied his legacy over time. A lot of media, a lot of representations of him have categorized him or characterized him as being arrogant rather than confident. And I think there's a really, really fine line there. Um, So in a recent study from the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, researchers looked at the portrayal of Asian American or Pacific Islander characters in the top films of 2019 and found that while they ranged from invisible to, quote, fully human, which is a wild term in itself, most fell into the categories of silenced, stereotyped, tokenized, isolated, and sidekicks or villains. Phew. And in looking at the top grossing movies, over a 13-year span, just 44 films had an AAPI lead. And in 14 of those, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who is of Samoan descent, had the lead role. Um, So we've still got a long way to go. And while we do have movies and shows like Crazy Rich Asians, The Farewell, Parasite, Fresh Off the Boat, Candace Kim's convenience. You know, they're making massive waves, but we're really only inching forward. Sarah, how many Dwayne Johnson movies have you seen in the last few years? 
I've seen a lot. I think he's a really charming performer. I am happy that he is an action star. I also thought he was good on Ballers, um, which isn't a show that I I love, but I I love the cast. I think the cast is great. Um, It's just one of those things where I wish, as you have pointed out, that Hollywood would make more room for Asian actors. They aren't making a huge improvement. I mean, we had crazy rich Asians, but it's almost like that gave them permission not to do very much else. Right. And even when you look at something like The Farewell, which was so highly debated about whether it was considered an American film or uh, an Asian film, despite very much having American production teams, Mm -hmm. it also calls to question something that Bruce often talked about, which was, what does it mean to be too Asian, quote unquote, or too American? And that's something he battled a lot in his career. And I know it's something a lot of these actors do too. And by the way, Dwayne Johnson, another person who found Bruce to be a massive inspiration, and we wouldn't have had him without him either, I don't think. Yeah. Um, So now let's cut to the biggest moment that's sort of uh, gotten Bruce's legacy back up to the front. So when it comes to Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which, by the way, was released just months after Crazy Rich Asians. I just want to point that out. Um, a novelization arrived for it just this July, written by Quentin. And, you know, listen, it was a great movie. I loved it. It's about Hollywood's golden age. I love that as a subject. But where it tripped up a lot of people, what is in its representation of Bruce, who is played wonderfully, by the way, by Mike Moe, and very briefly... There's really only one scene that he's in. It's very controversial. And in that scene, Sarah described it a bit earlier, but Lee challenges Brad Pitt's aging stuntman character Cliff to a three-round fight on the set of The Green Hornet after Cliff laughs at him when he says his fists have been registered as lethal weapons. And by the way, if Jennifer Lopez can insure her ass, he definitely could have insured his hands. Um, So Lee quickly wins the first round by knocking Cliff to the ground. Cliff wins round two by vaulting Lee into the side of a car and that's where it wraps it was troubling because bruce is very blatantly presented as a cocky stubborn fighter who thinks he's better than he is and is easily bested by an actually cocky white man when that was highly unlikely to happen in real life bruce didn't lose fights it just didn't happen um now here's a clip from the scene just to illustrate it for you where cliff pokes fun at bruce and uses the same criticisms the media and hollywood pelted at him you're a little man with a big mouth and a big chip And I think you should be embarrassed to suggest you be anything more than a stain on the seat of Cassius Clay's trunks. Father, you're the one with the big mouth. And I would really enjoy closing it, especially in front of all my friends. But my hands are registered as lethal weapons. That means we get into a fight, I accidentally kill you, I go to jail. Anybody accidentally kills anybody in a fight, they go to jail. It's called manslaughter. And I think all that lethal weapon horse shit is just an excuse so you dancers never have to get in a real fight. Now, Lee's daughter, Shannon, who is the chief executive of the Bruce Lee family company and heads her father's charity, is also a trained martial artist, by the way. She called the depiction disrespectful and a mockery of his legacy. She said to the LA Times, quote, the script treatment of my father as this arrogant, egotistical punching bag was really disheartening and I feel unnecessary. I feel like he turned his confidence into arrogance and his intelligence into mockery. I feel like he was picked on in the way that he was picked on in life by white Hollywood. Here's a clip of her and an ITV news host discussing the scene. 
it's a great film, but I thought that was the most unbelievable mm. section. That Bruce Lee would get a kicking from from a fifty year old bloke. It just wouldn't happen, would it? No, I don't. I don't think it would happen. No. Uh, not at all. And, um, you know, I understand what he was trying to do around the character of Cliff Booth in the film, but, you know, he could have handled it in a way that was respectful of my father as mm. well as, you know, served his story purposes. So, yeah, absolutely. Bruce would have taken him to the cleaners, especially the state that Brad is in these days. Sorry, Brad. Um, now, Jeff Yang, co-host of the podcast They Call Us Bruce, also said, quote, the biggest question I have here is, where does the line get drawn between homage and exploitation? And, you know, this is the thing, because with Bruce also being pinned as a side character like he was all those years ago in America, being used as a punchline and a punching bag in the stereotypical way Asian men were often cast, it's just kind of history repeating itself, but in the worst kind of way and in retrospect. Um, and not to mention, he's the only person of color in this film, and he's relegated to a joke, a device for Cliff to appear powerful and dominant. You know, I remember going to see this movie, and I remember people laughing at him in that scene, and it hurt me to see that. And it's led to his fans and his family having to defend him all over again. Um, sir, did you watch the movie? What did you make of his portrayal in that scene? Yeah. So I watched this movie with my husband. We went to the theaters. I was pregnant and I had really bad hyperemesis, which is when you throw up like nine times a day. So going to a movie, it meant I really wanted to see it because, you know, it was really hard for me to refrain from vomiting for any length of time. And that scene made me want to vomit. Like it was so <laughs> upsetting to see that. Uh, it was so blatantly racist. And the weird, not the weird, because this is expected from Hollywood. But the most egregious thing, I think, about that scene is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is supposed to be a fantasy. It's revisionist exactly. history. What could have been, what, you know, presumably Tarantino wish had happened. He wished Sharon Tate hadn't died and that someone had been able to save her. So if this is part of the fantasy of what he wished this time had been like, then what he's really saying is, I wish that the most famous Asian American movie star of all time had been bested by a white guy and had been taken to task and just emasculated by this Brad Pitt character who doesn't have any formal fighting training, also is way older than Bruce Lee would have been. Even if he had <laughs> been a champion in, in his day of Kung Fu, like this guy is so old. Yes. And we do know that in a fight that can make a real difference, right? We do know that. Yeah, I was really horrified by that scene. Um, and I, you know, I really, really wish that Tarantino hadn't included that. Like, I have a very conflicted relationship with Tarantino. I think he's technically a great filmmaker, but I am offended by a lot of his work. And another thing that was a big betrayal is one of the reasons we named my daughter Beatrix is because my husband loves Kill Bill. Um, and you know, the lead is Beatrix Kiddo. And then we went and we saw this movie where there is a really talented Asian American actor being beaten up by Brad Pitt and it's so racist and we just sort of thought like this is art that has really spoken to my family that you know my husband has Asian heritage and I mean his family is ethnically Trinidadian but he um, also has Chinese and East Indian roots as well and it's just it's such a slap in the face to your fans if you're Tarantino sorry about this rant but I really was offended by what Tarantino did and 
Tarantino's work means a lot to my family. So it was this is really personal for me. This is the place to rant. And God, I love that because I think you got it exactly right. It's also interesting to me the way that some people reacted to this movie versus others. And by some people, I mean, white people, Um, a lot of those viewers who maybe didn't know Bruce's legacy didn't see what the problem was. And I think that's why it's so important to have the context that we've been talking about for the last little bit. You've got to know why he is where he is and why people love him so much. And then you'll understand why it's so problematic the way he was depicted. Now, in early July, when the novel was released, Quentin did finally address the backlash on Joe Rogan's podcast, which, by the way, is telling enough. And he said, quote, I can understand his daughter having a problem with it. It's her fucking father. I get that. But anyone else? Suck a dick. End quote. Um, and, you know, he otherwise dismissed all of the criticism. It's kind of a ridiculous response. And you can tell that he doesn't really care for it. Um, and in response, Shannon, Bruce's daughter, wrote this incredible column for The Hollywood Reporter, which I strongly advise reading. Um, but here's just a little bit of it. Quote, I'm really fucking tired of white men in Hollywood trying to tell me who Bruce Lee was. I'm tired of hearing from white men in Hollywood that he was arrogant and an asshole when they have no idea and cannot fathom what it might have taken to get work in 19. 19- 60s and 70s Hollywood as a Chinese man with, God forbid, an accent or try to express an opinion on a set as a perceived foreigner and person of color. I'm tired of white men in Hollywood mistaking his confidence, passion, and skill for hubris, and therefore finding it necessary to marginalize him and his contributions. I'm tired of white men in Hollywood finding it too challenging to believe that Bruce Lee might have really been good at what he did and maybe even know how to do it better than them. Amen. Now, her column is, again, worth a read, but I think it hammers home the point that you cannot use an icon like that in a film paying tribute to an era that he owned. And by the way, Quentin is somebody who walks around saying that he's a massive Bruce fan and he's even a Bruce historian. And Sarah, you mentioned earlier Kill Bill. There's even a moment in that film where the great, great, great Uma Thurman is wearing a yellow jumpsuit that was clearly inspired by Bruce. And by the way, Quentin, of course, never gave that any credit. (laughs) So, Sarah, what do you make of Quentin's response? I mean, it's not great. It's flippant. It uses the imagery of sexual violence, which is something I wish in our society uh, white men would stop doing. Um, And I feel like also given that he oftentimes does things in his art that are vaguely homophobic, it's it's kind of homophobic imagery, too, in his mind. So. I am never really impressed when Quentin talks about his art, um, or at least criticisms of his art. (laughs) Um, Quote unquote art. You know what? I think he's very talented. Like, and this is why it's so hard for me, because I mean, as they say, all your faves are problematic. And I think he is technically a very good storyteller and a very good filmmaker, but he has no humility. And one of the reasons why I think his art kind of, in my opinion, plateaued, like I think it's good, but in my opinion, please don't at me, it's it, it never gets to the point of being a masterpiece is because people give him all of this criticism that he could take and use to make his art better. And he's just like, essentially like suck a dick, like screw you, right? Like I think he lacks humility, which is true of a lot of white male filmmakers. So 
his comments aren't surprising. Yeah, I think especially the ones who buy into the idea that they are these auteurs, these geniuses. And listen, I'm a Quentin fan. I love a lot of his movies, but I agree with you. He's really plateaued. And the other thing that we have to mention is that he's also got a history of very problematically representing Black characters, too. Mm-hmm. So this is not something that's new to him. He's been there before, and he's never had anything of substance to comment on that. Nope. Um, now, let's get back to Bruce a little bit and his history and a little bit of a tragic point. He died at the very young age of 32 due to a brain edema. So his resume was pretty much cut short and it's still very much beloved, but I think his early death made his life all the more meaningful to the many who loved him. Um, And, you know, with everything that we've discussed today, it really is only a fraction of his history. You know, there's no mistaking he left behind this massive legacy, one his daughter Shannon and his wife Linda have protected and his late son extended too. You know, Brandon... Brandon was a fight choreographer. He was a martial artist, an actor. He really took after his father. And he was deeply invested in Bruce's philosophies, too. And a fun fact, he even played the son of David Carradine in a film adaptation of the Kung Fu series. So there you go. He was known most for The Crow, though, which is a delicious cult hit. And if you have somehow not seen it, please go do that. Um, But like his father, he also had an early death when he was killed on the set of that film by a prop gun at the age of 28. Um, Sarah, what do you make of that family history a little bit? There's a lot of tragedy surrounding them. Shannon has had a, a life that was marked by so much loss, the loss of her father when she was a child, the loss of her brother as a youth. And Brandon Lee had so much talent. Like my husband always says he would have been Keanu Reeves if he'd lived. Like he was magnetic. He was super handsome, but he that was like the least interesting thing about him because he was also a talented, talented fighter um, and a great actor. He had charisma and spades, just like his dad. Um, and I mean, he was built to be a movie star. Yes, absolutely. I do love Keanu and I love that comparison. I can absolutely see it. Um, and you know, his memory prevails. The whole family's does. One of my favorite developments about that in the past few years is the revival of The Warrior, which if you remember is the show that Bruce wanted to make, but Warner Brothers stole and made into the very offensive Kung Fu. Please don't watch that. Um, but The Warrior was just renewed for a third season on HBO Max. It's based entirely on Bruce's original concept. It's produced by Shannon and it's also legitimately really good with a largely Asian cast. It follows the story of a young martial arts prodigy who moves to the U.S. from China, which I think sounds familiar. Um, And I'm so moved by the way Bruce's family and fans have kept his memory alive. His philosophies too. I mean, he had so many and he found new ground with the recent rise in anti-Asian racism and his philosophies too, of which he had many, found new ground with the recent rise in anti-Asian racism and has become a lingering protest icon. His face is on posters everywhere in rallies, particularly in Hong Kong's anti-government protests, and his most poignant belief, too, which we have a clip of here from the Pierre Burton Show in 1971. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now, you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now, water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. Chills, chills. Sir, what do you make of that line? What does it mean to you? I think he's talking about the interconnectedness of everything and also what we can learn from nature and the natural world. 
um, and how so much grace we can we can learn so much grace from watching nature and from being connected to it. But I mean, am, am I wrong? I don't know. I, I'm always self-conscious when I discuss philosophy. I dated too many philosophy majors in university who liked to um, be condescending to me. I am so sorry to hear that. We will discuss that another time. <laughs> That's terrible. But I think you're pretty much right on because I think the other thing with Bruce's philosophy is just the way that he was, was it's up to interpretation. Um, and I think the key thing with this one is, you know, be yourself, go with the flow. And when you face adversity, you have to fight against it, but also form yourself against it. And that means continuing to do the thing that you want to do and pursue it and have the confidence be kind of who he was and channel the attitude that he had with all of the adversity that he faced, which God was so much. And he still was able to really hold true to who he was from the very start, which I think is just so fantastic. I really love that line. And my God, what a soothing voice, by the way. Talk about ASMR. I really like how Bruce enunciates. I really like enunciation. I think the art of enunciation is largely lost, um, but I could listen to his voice all day. Oh, me too. Oof. Now, this brings us to our final segment. Hindsight is 2021, where we choose the one moment that we might have handled differently if we were the subject of the story. I shouldn't have done that. For me, you know, I could never be Bruce Lee for about a million reasons. So I am also very, very short. I do relate profoundly as a person of color who never saw versions of herself on screen or in journalism, which is my field of choice. So the way that I see it, I think he did everything right. And I think that's by proving that persistence and confidence are key to make it in a world that sees you as a threat or where you don't see a lot of people who look like you when you walk into a room. Um, but if I were a part of the media, I would have classified him as far more than a token. I would have recognized him for the incredible representation that he was. And I would have asked him about it. Um, and I absolutely would have gotten his name right. What about you, Sarah? So if I were Bruce Lee, I would come back from the dead and challenge Brad Pitt to a fight and beat him to a pulp <laughs> just to prove that Tarantino's scene was so racist. I think Bruce Lee handled everything he did in life with grace and poise, and he was so philosophical. I would be a petty ghost if I were Bruce Lee and I would go back to the release of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and I would avenge my legacy. Um, but I think one of the reasons why Bruce was so much more successful than I am is that he wasn't petty. So that probably wouldn't have been a good course <laughs> of action. I very much love that. And I hope that they could have an audience and we could be there because I would love to see Brad get destroyed. Sorry, Brad. Um, and also, by the way, Bruce, if you want to come and haunt me after, that is totally fine with me. Um, and that brings us to the end of this episode. I highly recommend seeking out more of Bruce's teachings and The Warrior, if you haven't seen it already, all the great criticism out there on his legacy, cataloged by some incredible Asian writers, including those we've noted today. And our next one, we'll be talking about about what I like to call the first family of the United States, the Kardashians. Now, if you want to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Sadafasan. Sarah, where can our listeners find you? Listeners can find me at Sarah Sahagian. And if you liked this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe so other listeners can find us too. Thanks for listening. 